Now hear these words as I read to you from the ninth chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For in the day, as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boots used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a portion of the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. For unto us a child is born. These words for us in our Christian history have been long interpreted as a messianic prophecy pointing to Jesus. And before that, in the late stages of the Jewish faith before the first century, these words in this prophecy became expectations for the coming Messiah. Because of the promise that was made to King David in 2 Samuel, The Hebrew expectation of the coming Messiah was built on an expectation of a proper son of David coming to rescue his people from his oppressors, from their oppressors, retaking the promised throne and installing a government whose reign of peace would be built on the foundations of justice and righteousness. It is this expectation that causes the writers of the Gospels to quote from this passage to allude to certain portions of this passage when discussing the identity and the vocation of Jesus. But before we get there, this morning I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about how we uh, gained these expectations, how this passage originally came to be. When Isaiah sat down to write about this, to write this passage, He was not thinking about a baby to be born 700 years in the future. Instead, Isaiah wrote in the midst of real history, in the midst of real events, in the midst of a time of chaos and corruption in his country. These chapters were written about a particular moment in Isaiah's ministry, about particular events in the history of the people of God. The year was roughly 734 or 733 BCE. The singular nation of Israel had long been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel in the north, capitaled in Samaria and run at this point by the king Pekah. And the southern kingdom was based in Jerusalem. It was called the kingdom of Judah. And the king here was a man named Ahaz. This is what the writer of 2 Kings has to say about these two kings. Of King Pekah and the northern kingdom, he says, This man did evil 
in the sight of the Lord. Of King Ahaz in the south, in the south he said, this man did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He even sacrificed his son in the fire. The book of the law, the Torah, lays out certain expectations for a king of the people of Israel. The expectations are actually quite brief, and in word, they're quite simple. Deuteronomy says this, when the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. It is to be with him. He's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. The king is not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Simple. The king must write a copy of the five books of Moses, carry them and read them for all of his days. The king doesn't just read, but the king has to write Torah down. And as we've discussed in here, Torah is not just a collection of laws. Torah is the narrative. It is the story, God's story of salvation and redemption of an entire nation. The commands that are contained within the Torah are commands that establish systems of justice and righteousness for a people that have been freed from slavery. Justice and righteousness in this context and in the context of Isaiah is not just a set of moral and ethical standards by which to live or to face a prescribed punishment. In this context, justice and righteousness are, are written, are established to ensure that a people that have been freed from slavery to the empire would always do two things. First, that they would never find themselves subject to oppression at the hands of their own leaders or other leaders. And second, that they would never find themselves perpetuating the oppression that was used against them, against other people against their own people or against strangers that they find within their land. The Torah teaches a people that were long the slaves of empire to never become that empire. And so the kings of this people, the kings of the people of Israel, are called to uphold this justice and righteousness. When the writer of 2 Kings says of a king that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, what that means is, this, is that this king has subjected his own people to oppression. These kings that are written about today, they've not lived in right relationship with God. They've not lived in right relationship with their neighbor or with the lands that they have been given. They've placed themselves above their people, finding ways to enrich themselves and hoarding the means of war, finding ways to enslave their own people and oppress the foreigners. One of these kings that we read about today goes so far as to sacrifice his own children. In 2 Chronicles, it says there's multiple children in the fire. It's in the face of these kings that Isaiah makes this prophecy, that Isaiah announces the birth of a child. And there's one other very large thing that overshadows this whole episode. Another empire is coming. The Assyrian Empire at this point has been growing bigger and bigger and more and more ruthless. 
By the time of Ahaz and Judah and Pekah and Israel, every nation in this region of the world is under threat. This threat causes the northern kingdom to ally itself with the Aramaeans, long-time enemies of the people of Israel. This alliance then invites the kingdom of the south to join, and King Ahaz, fearing the retribution of the Assyrians, says no. The northern alliance is provoked, and they decide to take Judah by force and install their own man on the throne. And as these two kings, these smaller kings and kingdoms, bear down on Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah offers to Ahaz this prophecy an assurance that Judah will prevail. The Lord himself will give a sign, says the prophet, that that young woman, translated as virgin in the Septuagint, that young woman will become pregnant. She will bear a child, and his name will be Emmanuel. By the time that this boy is weaned, the land of the two kings that you fear will be laid waste. Assyria will conquer them both. The prophecy of Emmanuel 7 or Emmanuel is found in chapter 7. By the time you read the two chapters and get to the passage that we read today in chapter 9, you find that there are at least three mentions of different children, possibly four. And of these children, Isaiah says this, these children are the sign of the Lord Almighty. These children are the sign that your kingdom that your people will no longer suffer. Your people will no longer be threatened by these two rebellious kings. These children are the sign that even the Assyrians will not stand against you for a time. But these children are also the sign that your people will no longer suffer under your own rule. You as the king may perpetuate injustice. You may make sacrifices on the high places to idolatrous altars. You may make war with your own brothers and sisters, enslaving your own family. You may even sacrifice the the lives of your own sons. But your people will no longer suffer. New life, says the prophet, these children, this new life is the sign that new life will continue. For unto us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The prophecy of these chapters in its immediate context is the announcement of the coming of a new king. In the direct context of Isaiah, it's the birth of a crown prince, a man that would come to be known as the King Hezekiah. The northern alliance is indeed conquered by Assyria, The kingdom of Israel is laid waste and the people are deported. Ahaz does rule just a little bit longer, but is eventually followed on the throne by the son, Hezekiah. The writer of 2 Kings says about Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Hezekiah is born 14 generations after David, and yet it's David that Hezekiah is most closely associated with. He clung to the Lord, says the writer of 2 Kings. He kept the commands of Torah, says the writer of 2 Chronicles. He reigned over peace, through justice, 
and righteousness. And roughly 700 years later, the people of Israel again find themselves with a tyrannical local king in Herod. For Herod, his position of authority is only a means to gather more wealth, to ensure his own authority and the authority of his sons. The people of Israel also again find themselves under the shadow of another empire. Rome can and will conquer the entire world. It is again in the face of such kings that this announcement is made. New life again in the child of Christ is a sign that new life will continue. For unto us a child is born. In the midst of the darkness, seeds are germinating. Under the shadow of empire, new life is gestating in the chaos of inequality and corruption righteousness and justice spring forth. In the face of empire, a baby has been born. This new life will beget new life, which will beget new life. This is the prophecy that this Christ child fulfills, a calling for a new king and a new kingdom, whose reign of peace will have no end. This morning, we, re- we lit the candle that represents love, though nowhere in our passage is love actually mentioned. Today, we anticipate the coming of love made flesh in a singular person, and yet our person tells not just of a singular king, but of an entire kingdom. Dr. Cornell West says, never forget, justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. And so I ask you these questions in this Advent season. Where have you heard the cries of the oppressed? Where do you witness injustice? Where do you see the extortion of neighbor and land? For these are the places that this prophecy is spoken for. These are the places that this kingdom comes to rescue, to restore, and to redeem. It is in these places that new life will be born. Finally, I have this for you. A very big part of what this passage has to say to us has to do with the ways that we structure our society, the ways that we govern ourselves, the ways that we systemically still oppress people, in the ways that we systemically set them free. But it also has something to do with you and me and our small interactions with the regular world. I discovered something about myself last week. Many of you know that I married a girl from Uvalde. She's the daughter of a family that's been in the farming business for multiple generations, and I have learned a lot from becoming a part of this family. One of the things that I've learned grew from my love of the outdoors. In this family, I've learned that I absolutely love to hunt. This is a surprise to me because if you know me, you know that I tend to be a little bit more progressive. Ten years ago, hunting and gun ownership and things like this were not on my radar. And so last weekend, last Saturday, I was in Uvalde 
And I woke up well early in the morning before the sun came up, and I drove to the farm of a family friend that is generous enough to share his land with us. That morning, I had this entire farm to myself. As far as I was aware, I would be the only person on this 5,000-acre plot of land, and that peace and calm were to be mine for the next several hours. I was bow hunting that day, and so I got my bow, and I climbed up into a tree stand, and I began to wait. I waited for the sun to rise, and as the light grew, I watched the fields around me. And as I surveyed those fields, as I looked through the forest and looked at the river that was to my south, I looked into the field to the north, and I noticed that there was a man walking towards me. I picked up my binoculars and took a closer look at him, and I could see that this man was limping. He was carrying a milk jug that was about half full with water, and that his skin was darker than mine. This man was a migrant. He was headed directly towards me in this field. As he got closer and closer, he eventually noticed my truck. He saw my truck that was parked about 150 yards away from where I was, hidden in a little bit of brush, and he started to head towards my truck. And as I watched him head towards my truck, I remembered that in my truck were my hunting rifle and a pistol. And I was very thankful that I had remembered to lock the doors. I watched him head towards that truck, and I got scared. I watched as he circled around my truck and looked in the windows, and I didn't know what to do. Finally, I decided to whistle. And when I whistled, he knew that he was being watched, and he stood back from the truck, and he waited for a little while. And then he started to head towards my truck again, and so I whistled again. And he stood, took a drink from his jug of water, and I waited. I waited, I waited, and finally, he began to walk the other direction. I learned last Saturday that my progressive values, that my expressed love of my neighbor and the immigrant are something that are highly dependent dependent on my own feelings of safety and security. I've been shaken by this experience. This experience has gone through my head over and over again in the last week. I don't know what I should have done differently. I don't know if this man even actually posed a threat to me in the way that he walked away. probably tells me that he didn't. I had water in my truck, I had food in my truck that I could have offered this man. But the ideas of love and justice and righteousness did not enter my mind until well after he had walked away. I don't know all that God offers me in this moment, but I do know that there is an invitation to transformation. That the problem that I have seen is somewhat far away, even though I have done work with the immigrants here in San Antonio and on the border of our state, this problem became much closer to me in this experience. It's in the face of my own kingdom that this announcement is made this year. 
For unto me a child is born. If Jesus is this announced king, and I am a part of this kingdom, then I am an agent of this kingdom. The reign of peace in some way comes through me. As I am born and reborn into this kingdom over and over again, I too carry the yoke of justice and righteousness on my shoulders. New life in me will beget new life around me. Let us pray.